0: You can't change someone who doesn't see an issue in their behaviors. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit show. How are we doing? For any new listeners, my name is Andrea, and here's my deal I grew up in an alcoholic household. I became an alcoholic myself. I got sober at the age of 19. And then in 2018, with nine years of sobriety and nine years of toxic, romantic relationships, I hit an emotional bottom that was even more painful than the bottom that brought me into sobriety. And that pain turned out to be the biggest damn blessing of my entire life because it was through that pain that I came to terms with the true impact that my child had had on me and that I was an adult child. And that was such a relief because for years I was convinced that I was inherently flawed and unfixable when the fact was that I was just an adult child. And there are a shitload of people out there who, once like me, are convinced that they are inherently flawed and unfixable when in fact they're just adult children. And I created this podcast in hopes of reaching as many of those damn people as possible. All right, y'all, buckle up because we got a goodie coming your way. Today, we are diving deep into adult children of emotionally immature parents, And we are speaking with the woman who has coined this term, Dr. Lindsay Gibson. So we haven't really talked about this that much on the pod, adult children of emotionally immature parents. And I wanted to share, I thought this was really interesting. A few months back when I was doing some like SEO research for my website and just looking at Google search terms, adult children of emotionally immature parents is actually searched for more on Google than adult children of of alcoholics. So what the hell is an emotionally immature parent, you ask? Well, an emotionally immature parent is someone who struggles to provide consistent emotional support, understanding, and appropriate responses to their child's emotions and needs. So how the hell do you know... If your parent was emotionally immature, well, allow me to help you there too. So in, uh, Lindsay's book, she has an assessment. So I'm going to read these to you and you can see what, what resonates. Uh, so my parent often overreacted to relatively minor things. My parent didn't express much empathy or emotional awareness when it came to emotional closeness and feelings, my parents seemed uncomfortable and didn't want to go there. My parent was often irritated by individual differences or different points of view. My parent often said and did things without thinking about people's feelings. I didn't get much attention or sympathy from my parent except maybe when I was really sick. Uh, my, if I became upset... My parent either said something superficial and unhelpful or got angry and sarcastic. And last but not least, my parent was inconsistent, sometimes wise, sometimes unreasonable. Now, if you answered yes to one or more per Lindsay, per the book, it says you you might have an emotionally immature parent. In my opinion, adult children of dysfunctional families, adult children of alcoholics, adult children of narcissists, adult children of emotionally immature parents, I think we're all just kind of dealing with the same thing. It just manifests in different ways. So let's, let's get going folks. But first let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the join shit show so this is my community, my online community, where I host virtual Zoom support groups. And you also get access to an amazing group of of shit shows who are doing the damn work to heal and who have sense of humors and who are okay with the word fuck. So today, in today's meeting, actually, I wrote this down because... It really hit me. So this is what someone shared today. One of the things that Nicole, Nicole Cowgirl, she said, she said, it's such an honor and privilege to spend time with those who have the courage to be here. And I thought that that was very moving for me. So how about you damn the Join shit show? Check out the show notes, y'all. Let's do it. I know you've been wanting to join. Yeah, you. How about today? Do you take your healing to the next level. Okay. Damn the join next. Give me a, uh, a little follow on the Insta on the TikTok. at adult child pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple on Spotify. Thank you. Love you all.
1: All
0: right, y'all we're in for a real damn treat. I'm so excited for this. Please welcome the author of Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, Lindsay Gibson. Hi, hi, hi.
1: Hi. Um, thank you for having me, Ashley. Andrea. It's okay. Oh, it happens sorry. to me. Andrea. my whole life. My whole life.
0: <laughs> the one way you can screw up is if you called me Andrea. <laughs> so Ashley's the way to go.
1: <laughs> Hopefully this is this is being taped instead of live. Oh, but I only, I'm going to include this. (laughs) This is how we roll.
0: All natural. Andrea, 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 Andrea. It's okay. It happens my whole life. So you have your new book out, Disentangling from Emotionally Immature People. Avoid emotional traps. Stand up for yourself and transform your relationships as an adult child of emotionally immature parents. How long were you working on that for?
1: Oh, yeah, that was, that one was probably... A little over a year, and it just came out on uh, July first. It's sort of an interesting um, evolution of that book because we started out to write a workbook. That was what I contracted for, and as I'm trying to do the workbook, and I'm trying to think up things like exercises and checklists and fill in the blanks and and I was just like not feeling it at all. Um, in fact, I was getting a backache, which is always a bad sign. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I called my editor and I said, look, can we, uh, can we do something else here? Because this is, this is not gonna, I can't do this for a year. So we ended up changing the format, um, which is now uh, 50 small chapters, bite-sized chapters where you can look up a question that would be important to you and read about it. And then we have a little bit of the workbook left in there where there's some uh, strategies and tips. And then there's a place where you can write a couple of answers to um, prompts and, you know, questions like that. And, And so it's, it's a, it has a little bit of back and forth, but it's short and it's, uh succinct so that you can go to the index look up what you're interested in or just you know flip through it and find something that seems to be a question that you might have yeah so it was the workbook that didn't happen but i actually like it better than a workbook it's the workbook that wasn't supposed to happen
0: (laughs) thank you (laughs) (laughs) this was what was supposed to be made right
1: exactly
0: exactly Um, Come to look at it, so what's the what's the backstory? What's the backstory of the term
1: of emotionally immature parents, adult children of Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was going to graduate school, um, back when I was doing my master's there was a very heavy emphasis on child development in the clinical program. So we didn't just, you know, look at diagnoses like what the DSM-5 or whatever it was back then would say. We weren't looking for symptoms. We were looking to get a picture of where that person was in their emotional development, their psychological development. And so when I would write psychological reports, I would always put in there kind of a description of how to think of them in terms of their emotional maturity. Like, you know, were they functioning like a four-year-old? Were they functioning like a 15-year-old? And this is, you know, someone who's in their forties. So we were trying to get that, that picture of kind of where they got stuck in their psychological development. So I had that background. And then later when I was doing um, private practice with individual patients, that's when I began to listen to their stories with those ears. And I would be listening to what they were saying and going, wow, you know, he sounds like a (laughs) five-year-old, like like that's, you know, that's five-year-old behavior. And And then I started sharing that with my client as a way of sharing with them how I was understanding what they were saying. And they're like, yes, yes, it really is. So that's where I got really the the beginning of it. It was that I saw how useful it was to people and how much they resonated with it. It's like they already knew the truth, but nobody had said, uh, yes, you are right. Your parent is acting like a child. Mm -hmm. And that was enormously freeing to them, just that idea by itself.
0: I'm sure that there were, when you come up with such an, an important term and work that resonates with so many people, I mean, it's my opinion that it's all very much divinely inspired, universal. I'm assuming that there's probably some certain people that you crossed paths with where it's like very clear that you were supposed to, that really- had an impact in you developing, you know, this term and the healing. So is there somebody that comes to mind?
1: Um, Not one person. I I would say that all along the way, I've gravitated toward people who, you know, uh, teachers, mentors who are interested in depth psychology, you know, Mm -hmm. like really wanted to understand at a deep level why people did things. Mm -hmm. Sort of behaviorism and cognitive therapy never felt deep enough for me Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to understand like how the psyche works and so I would say that you know any any program that I was in whether it was for my master's or my doctorate I'm gravitating to the people who are interested in that kind of work Mm -hmm. and I've had many wonderful wonderful teachers on that
0: Were you familiar, very familiar with like adult children of, of alcoholics at this point when you were developing all this?
1: No, no, I I really wasn't because that was, that was on a, uh, a separate path. Mm -hmm. Um, and then as I got more and more into it, I, I mean, I, of course, um, knew about, uh, the ACOA programs, but. At that point, I didn't want to get into it in such a way that it would start to kind of get bleed over into what I was formulating. So I kind of kept my distance from that in order to, you know, bring my ideas together just on the psychological front. Hmm. I
0: mean, personally, I think it's all the same shit. Mm-hmm. I think it just manifests in different ways, you know, um, uh, yeah. It's important though. And I'm I'm glad that I think it's, it's great with, um, with your term because people then are much more likely to understand that. I mean, a lot of people still think that the term adult child only applies to people who grew up in an alcoholic home.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm.
0: a lot of people still think that, and I think it's so important to, um, to get that message out. I mean, I would say, I would venture to say that having an emotionally immature parent would qualify as being part of a dysfunctional family. Would you agree? <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: Yes. And do you yes.
0: view it as trauma based?
1: Um, I, I do, and yet I leave the door open um, that there can be some innate things going on, uh, or there can be things that you know might uh, might fall short of trauma according to some strict definition. Um, but it's still enough to, you know, to make the, make the impact. So, um, yeah, when I think of what makes these parents get stuck in their development, I'm perfectly comfortable thinking that most of the time I bet it's trauma because there has to be something that, well, let me back up. There's something that sort of stops the process of completing, or not completing, because we never completed, but continuing your psychological development. But it could just as easily be from a different kind of trauma than what we usually think of, which is just, you know, not being paid attention to, um, not being connected with, not being seen, you know, nobody's done anything horrible to you, you know, action-wise, but neither have they been there for you to give you a platform to develop from.
0: Yeah. Less about what you experienced versus what, what you did not
1: experience. Yes. Yes, exactly.
0: I mean, granted, I grew up in an alcoholic home, but you know, I was not physically or sexually abused. I was never told I was a piece of shit. All of my needs were always accounted for. And I had no idea just how, impacted I had been.
1: Yeah. And I think
0: that in certain respects, suffering more subtle forms of abuse or neglect is worse in a way in the sense that the individual has no idea that they suffered anything at all. And when you don't know how the hell do you change? How do you heal?
1: Right? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that's one of the reasons why people have responded to this concept it's because it put into words something that they knew had affected them. Um, But it was a truth that they couldn't put into words. And I don't think it was really, you know, socially acknowledged. However, I mean, I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants with the ACOA movement, because, you know, especially when they branched into, uh, you know, broadening into dysfunctional families. Yeah. Because that did give the legitimacy and the, um, publicity to the phenomenon that, you know, having your parents be a certain way can actually have a huge impact on your life. And we don't have to define you or diagnose you or whatever to say that this had a a big effect on you.
0: I bet you've gotten so much over the years, just all the people like, just get over it.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's it's really unfortunate, um, but people kind of carry that into the psychotherapy sessions, mm-hmm. and you can see it when they come in and they say, you know, this is, I have this thing I want to talk about, but it's so silly, and it's so small, you know, I just feel, I feel stupid for bringing it up, or they'll say, uh, something is bothering me, but it's, it's, it's just, it's this little thing, but I can't seem to get rid of it, and then they'll start to explain it. And you're like, that's not a little thing. You know, that's not a silly thing. This is important emotional stuff. But they've learned how to minimize their own experience. And it's really tragic, I think.
0: How do you explain that to clients as far as helping them grasp how things that on the surface might seem minute, how much that really does devastatingly impact us?
1: Yeah, well, I, I sort of have to do a, a little educational thing, usually at the beginning of my work with somebody. And what I say is that there are no little things. Mm-hmm. Like when we're going to work together in psychotherapy, let's just, you know, get it straight from the beginning that the, there are no little things. So if something occurs to you to talk about, or something's on your mind, or something bothered you that is a very important clue for us. And you've got to feel free about bringing that up without deciding in advance that it's not important. Because I think we have this center in us that is always wanting to grow and it knows where to go to to find the place that needs to be healed. Mm. And yet if our reasoning mind jumps in there and says, well, let me take this thing's measurement. And and no, I don't think this is really important to, enough to, for you to be spending your psychotherapy time on it. So just can that and bring up something else. I mean, you really get off track when you listen to that part of your mind. So there are no little things. And I, I would encourage everybody to feel that way because your subconscious mind will bring up the heart of the problem. And if it doesn't look like it on the surface, you probably just have to dig a little bit to find out what it really means to the person. Mm -hmm. Do you consider yourself an adult child, and emotionally immature parent? Well, you know, when I was doing the stories for my books, I got permission from all of the people that I worked with and I had them explain what I was going to do. I had them sign permission slips um, and With my parents, I never had the opportunity to do that. They're both gone now. So I just don't have anything to add to that from my personal experience because um, they don't have an opportunity to tell their side of the story. And so I just honor their right to have their privacy, uh, just like I do with my patients. Okay, well, you know I had to ask.
0: I'm just going to go out on a limb. And I think that if you've helped a lot of people with this stuff, that there's a, that there's a pretty good chance that you have some personal experience. <laughs> so what would you say is one of the most subtlest forms of emotional immaturity?
1: Mm, that, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, cause mostly we, we look for the, you know, most glaring example. Yeah. Um, yeah but i think th- there's a there's a parenting type you know i have uh like the four parenting types um of uh emotionally immature parents and there's one type uh that i call the passive type and i would say that they're probably the subtlest of the emotionally immature parents because they are often the the nicest um, warmest uh, most supportive parent that the child has and they they are kind of like um, the favorite and they have been kinder to the child than than the other parent who may be more flamboyantly immature but that passive parent allows the more uh, overtly emotionally immature parent to really lead the way and do whatever they want pretty much even though they they are you know uh, tend to be kinder and more thoughtful toward the child they really allow that other parent to do pretty much whatever they want i mean that's why i call them the passive parent because they maintain their lives kind of going along with the status quo, and they don't step in to protect their children, uh, from what goes on with the other parent. And when you really look at their behavior, it's really pretty egocentric too. Um, and their empathy really is limited, just like the, the overtly emotionally immature parents is. It's just that they are on the surface, they're nicer and they're more fun or, you know, they're warmer. There's something about them that makes them, you know, sort of like the preferred parent. So that's why I call them probably the most subtle one, because you would think that, you know, maybe they are emotionally mature because they're not as, you know, uh, damaging uh, overtly. But when you really look at the nature of their relationship with the child, uh, you can see you can see the immaturity. And plus, uh, people tend to be attracted to other people who are pretty much at the same emotionally uh, mature or immature level that they are.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like attracts like. Yeah. Say, sick attracts sick. Um, what sort of childhood experiences result in a more passive parent? Like typically what is that rooted in?
1: Well, I, th- I think there may be, um, sort of, uh, a learning curve in there where they find out how to go along, um, and get along by letting other people lead the way more. Um, or, you know, it could be that temperamentally they're, they may be calmer. They may be, you know, more sensitive,
2: Uh but
1: they're not so sensitive that they really put themselves in the shoes of their children. Not really, but I, I think they, they sort of find that, that way to, to get along and to, um, protect themselves from some of the, the worst stuff that comes along And so they, you know, they grow up, they have their families, but, but they've probably got some serious stuff in their background too. It's just that they may not have the temperament or the acute um, reactivity of another type of parent, of emotional parent. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. The, the one thing that I make a big deal to emphasize um, is that You know, the reason that it's so important to talk about our experiences isn't to like shit on our parents, but that we have to understand the causes and conditions that made us the way that we are and that, you know, this stuff doesn't just pop out of nowhere, right? Like our parents are just a product of, of their own dysfunctional upbringing or their own emotionally immature parenting.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and I think every, that's the way actually everybody wants to think about it. I think that's one of the reasons why this idea has become so popular. It's that you don't have to call your parent a name. You don't have to um, give them a mental health diagnosis. Uh, You don't have to say they're narcissistic or borderline or whatever.
0: Mm, I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, it is a lot. It is kind of a softer,
1: gentler way to <laughs> call them emotionally immature. <laughs> no, it, it really is. It's it's a descriptor. It's, I mean, it's not it's not in the diagnostic manual, and it it doesn't make you. Well, I'm not I'm not a big diagnosis person anyway. I don't <laughs> never liked doing diagnosis because I feel like it's so, you know, limiting and so misleading. But I think that people, um, you know, when they're um thinking about their parents, they want something that captures their experience with them. And nobody no child experiences their parent as narcissistic or, you know, uh, some other diagnostic category. They, that's that's mom, that's dad. And yet that emotional immature term captures something about the way they behave and i think that sets better with people yeah yeah
0: so my experience and the experience of so many people listening right now is being subjected to emotional parentification i'm sure that you see that a ton in your in your patients
1: yeah tell me what you mean by that term though i'm not familiar with it i mean um treating
0: your child as your as their confidant emotional support so for example in my family You know, my mom's alcoholism was a secret from the rest of the world. So my dad used me as a, you know, seven, eight year old to, as his emotional support and confidant to talk about my mother's drinking. And to me, in a way I took it as like a big honor, you Mm -hmm. know, like it made me feel special. I felt in the know what's so big for a little girl to take on. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and it wouldn't be something like you say that, that you would object to or think was wrong. Um, plus you're getting information, which, you know, always makes people feel like they have, you know, more of a footing. So
0: I think my first addiction was really to the dysfunction in my home. And I just remember sitting on the stairs, listening to my parents fight. It was like hearing every single detail, knowing exactly what was going on, Provided me with a sense of security. And I've noticed that the way that that's shaped out, like down the road, was being almost like a busybody and asking a lot of questions and just wanting all the information,
1: you know? Yeah. Yeah. And plus, I mean, it really is. I mean, it's just like, you know, we do with our adult friendships. When somebody is telling you something that's really true about a deep part of their lives, you feel very close to them. I mean, that's a form of emotional intimacy of course it really shouldn't be done with your own child about your spouse but but it does yeah it has all these qualities about it that uh, of course the child is interested in that and and they don't realize you know at the time maybe what that is doing to their own security but you know I'm I'm just thinking too that Lots of children, especially when they're being triangled um, against somebody that they do love or that they do need or they do like, they're, they're aware that that's very unpleasant. I mean, they don't like being party to tearing somebody down, for instance, that they actually have a bond with. And I've had a lot of people who have said to their parent. Look, you know, when you talk to me about, you know, Uncle Bob or about my sister or whoever it is, um, that affects my relationship with them. So I, I wish you wouldn't tell me these things. And then the parent is sort of like, well, all I'm doing is talking about my feelings. I'm just letting you know. I mean, who, who else am I supposed to tell this stuff to? um uh, you know, like, well, I don't know but I don't think
0: it's your child <laughs> well I would think it would take a little bit of of health and healing for somebody to be in a place where they'd be willing to even set that boundary though right <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: you're right you're right sometimes when people get older uh they they do find the words for that but lots of times it doesn't really sink into the parent that they're doing anything wrong no of course not
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's when I really set that firm boundary with my dad. I was about it's maybe like five or six years sober, and I remember just telling him, "You know, you have to stop calling me every time there's an incident with mom." So this is the quote that rocked my world. It, it it rocks my world every time I read it. People who lacked emotional engagement in childhood, men and women alike often can't believe that someone would want to have a relationship with them just because of who they are. They believe that if they want closeness, they must play a role that always puts the other person first.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's really such a, it's such a sad legacy that you could be, you know, kind of brainwashed sort of, that your experiences would set you up to believe that nobody would want to get to know you at a deeper level. I mean the effect of that is so huge and it's it makes you so um insecure and and actually anxious when relationships start getting really deep um because you can't believe that there's anything there in yourself that is going to you know, really attract and, and, you know, let alone hold somebody's attention or hold their loyalty to you. I mean, you're expecting any minute for them to kind of go, oh, well, okay, I'm done. Um, (laughs) That was nice. Okay. Uh, And move on because the, the length of time that you stay in the, the attention of the emotionally mature parent is not long. Okay. They're quickly on to the next thing that's going to make them feel better or feel more whole. And so you always feel like you're, you know, you're having to pedal fast to keep up, to keep yourself within their, you know, span of attention. And that translates to that uneasiness, you know, when you're an adult that you don't know, you know, like one woman said to me, it was so poignant. She said, I, I just have a hard time dating people because, you know, when I'm on the date with them, all I can think about is I'm not enough. I'm just not enough. And they don't know what they're supposed to doing, what they're supposed to be doing besides, you know, who they are, but they just kind of have learned that it's never enough to really hold the attention and the affection of the other person.
0: My experience though, is that like, this was not a conscious thought for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably the experience for a lot of people. I mean, I definitely didn't think like on a surface that somebody just wouldn't want to be with me just for me, but my actions showed that.
1: Yeah. That's why I mentioned that, that particular client, because for her to have that awareness, she was the, the first person that I had worked with that just flat out said that. And I, and plus uh, when she did, it made me feel like, wow, we've, you know, we have just moved right along here. (laughs) We've, we've really uh, identified something huge, um, you know, because she was aware of that. She's aware of that feeling. Do you remember how that unfolded and kind of what the process was of working through that? Yeah, it was the process of going more deeply into that feeling, you know, what do you mean by that? What's it feel like? What do you do when you feel like that? Um, And just going into it more and more deeply until she could see that she was really trying to figure out the answer to something that there wasn't even the there wasn't even a question being asked. Um, this sounds, this sounds really convoluted, but what I mean is that nobody was saying to her, why aren't you enough? Or, um, or you're not enough. She just felt that way and assumed that that's what reality was, because that's how her parents acted toward her. And no matter what she did, no matter, you know, how pretty she was, or how accomplished she was, her parent would look at her with that judgmental eye and find something to pick at, you know, or make some suggestion for improvement. And that is such a, uh, you know, like an overgeneralized way of living that you don't realize that you're being taught that you're not enough just as you are. And so you just assume that that guy you're going on the date with is going to be doing the same thing you know, evaluating you, looking at how you could be improved, et cetera. And it's so, it's so, it's such a novel idea to them that maybe that's not what the rest of the world is thinking when they're looking at them. Maybe there are people that just want to get to know them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, after you have put so much energy into trying to create you know, a, a personality that you think will kind of be your currency to spend in the, you know, in the social world, it's really hard for you to believe that people could be interested in what's on the inside. And that that can take a long time for people to actually work through and experiment with in relationships. Yeah, a long time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and I think the problem too is like, It's, we have that belief, right? And then we in turn behave in certain ways that causes other people to react a certain way that just reaffirms that belief.
1: Sure, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, if you feel that way, you're not going to, um, you know, like uh, walk into the lion's den by lowering your defenses and, and letting the person get to know you. Mm-hmm. Because your fear is going to be that you won't be interesting to them, mm-hmm. uh, it won't be enough to you to, you know, to have them want to see you again, these kinds of things. And then you get, you know, very performative, um, just to try to keep yourself in the light of their attention. And it's, yeah, it's tragic, because if the person is halfway healthy, you don't have to work that hard, because they are interested in other people they do want to get to know you. Mm -hmm. When you talk about
0: internalizers versus externalizers, what it reminds me of is with John Bradshaw and toxic shame and how there's the shameless acting in, which is where we're kind of trying to be perfect to avoid future shaming in situations, which reminds me of internalizers. And then externalizers is that is the shameful acting out where we kind of just lean into that shame and act accordingly.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: With, with those that you work with, do you feel like more people are internalizers?
1: Well, the, the people who come for psychotherapy are almost, uh, you know, by and large, they're internalizers because the internalizing mind is always trying to figure things out. Um, in, in a truth-seeking kind of way, not not in a manipulative way. Like, how can I, you know, do this or that? It's more like, why is that? And and how is that? And they they love to learn, and they love to process stuff inside. They're usually very sensitive people, and so they they like to understand stuff. They like to um, read and put ideas together, and that gives them you know, this wonderful sense of mastery. So psychotherapy is kind of tailor-made for that kind of person, and that's who self-refers. The The interesting thing, just as a, a side note here, the interesting and kind of sad thing is that the people who are probably more emotionally healthy, the internalizers, end up identifying themselves as patients and getting a diagnosis in psychotherapy because they want to get to the bottom of it. Mm. And then the people that are causing a lot of the problems who are more emotionally immature are just kind of out there running wild and they won't go near a therapist because they're externalizers for the most part. And so everything is somebody else's fault. Um, you know, something fell out of the sky and hit them on the head. I mean, they have no curiosity and no self-reflection about what their part might have been in the problem. So psychotherapy doesn't make a lot of sense to them because as soon as they get, you know, a kind of a uncomfortable feeling, well, it's somebody else's fault, you know, and that shouldn't have happened. And then they go off on that. Um, and then they, and then they are entitled to do anything they need to do to make themselves feel better. And that's not going to be, go see a therapist. Usually, I mean, (laughs) the only time that that externalizers, uh, tend to show up at a therapist's office is when their foot's to the fire, you know, like the court has ordered them, um, you know, they're, they're in some kind of legal trouble, their spouse is about to leave them. Uh, They're about to get fired, you know, something like that, which forces them to do the psychotherapy thing. But as a therapist, you know, it can be really hard going Mm. when somebody is, is, you know, not, doesn't have enough of the internalizing mindset to be able to work in therapy.
0: And are there certain ex- childhood experience that would result in more,
1: becoming more of an externalizer? Well, I th- I mean, I-, I would say yes, although I don't know, I haven't researched this directly. So I- I'm not sure exactly how they would be treated differently, but it can be, um, it can be from harsh treatment. It can be from uh, not having enough limits, not having enough guidance, um, like a parent who really reinforces that child's sense of victimization. You're right, honey. They shouldn't have done that to you. Um, you, were, you were okay. They made the mistake. Um, you know, they teach them how to look for the cause of their, of their problems outside themselves so it can be you know it can be a um actually a pretty broad range of things that that end up uh you know accentuating the externalizing solution but i think that lots of times the internalizer child is probably starting out with a kind of a, a neurological sensitivity and perceptiveness that's probably more acute than the externalizer. I mean, externalizing is kind of a blunt instrument. You know, it's like wham, you know, it's somebody else's fault or I didn't do it or, you know. Uh, But for the internalizer, they really perceive a lot of stuff. They really see a lot of stuff that's going on and then they have these sensitive reactions to them. Mm. That combination, I think, sets your mind on this course of trying to understand things because you just can't help but notice stuff and you can't help but have a feeling about it. And that makes you more complex inside, all that going on in there. Whereas for the externalizing child, it may be you know, much more stimulus and response without a lot of these complicating things like the perceptiveness or the sensitivities.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: When you have a, a patient come in,
0: a client come in, how do you help them navigate when it's appropriate to go no contact?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a very, um, that's a very delicate kind of, uh, moment. Mm-hmm. I remember th- this was back way before I wrote, um, wrote the the book on emotionally mature parents, but I had a person, uh, come in and they were telling me about their mother and really they were furious with their mother. And they were telling me that they were cutting off all contact. Um, they're going, um, out of communication with them. And I remember having this reaction, like, gosh, that doesn't sound very healthy. Like, (laughs) uh, but to my credit, I was like, I read you loud and clear that you don't want to have any more contact. And so we're just going to understand this and whatever you need to do, you know, you're going to do. And I was always glad that I did not give into that impulse to say, well, you know, um. Do you think maybe you should talk to your mom? Or yeah, no, I just completely accepted it. And it wasn't actually until a couple of years later, you know, people end up telling you the most important stuff so far down the road. And <laughs> you think, oh my God, I gotta oh, really I mean that, that when you first walked thing. in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that person told me a story about their mother, and it was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, you did know. You did know Um, you did do the right thing, Um, you know, because it just sunk into me what they had been dealing with, with that, that example that came later. But um, usually what happens is I'm always asking the person to keep exploring how they're feeling. And I'm asking them to, um, you know, tell me about it. Tell me what, you know, how it could be, how no contact would be better. There've been only a handful of times when I've really suggested that maybe, you know, uh, no contact for a while might be the way to go. And that's usually in response to a specific incident. Yeah, wait, yes. Like like this Thanksgiving or this birthday or, you know, when you can tell that the person is just torn up. About the prospect of going, you know, home for a visit or uh, staying in contact with this person, or you know, whatever it is, you can just tell that they need to at least consider that they have the choice not to go or to not respond. And so we always, you know, uh, will will look at the possibilities there. But for the most part, if if someone is thinking about breaking off contact because they think that's going to, if, if they think that there's going to be uh, like a, a cure of the situation by breaking off all contact, then we do explore what's going to happen in terms of their own growth. Mm-hmm. Because if you've got a major thing going on with somebody and you just kind of walk out is that the best way to handle it in terms of your own growth now sometimes it is because that that person can be so negative and so really toxic to your well-being that it's worth it to do that but there are other times when the problem is not so much that the person needs to get away from them as they yeah they just don't want to deal with it in a way. Well, they don't know how to deal with it mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They can't believe that there could be another way to deal with it, except capitulation. So when you work with them to find more active ways of uh you know confronting what's going on and setting boundaries, setting limits, sometimes they can feel you know much more empowered, and then it's they're not so desperate to get away from them. But like I say, there are some people who <laughs> are really, um, really toxic and you have to, you have to be able to uh, know that you can cut off contact if you needed to.
0: Yeah. I think that if you're like continually to like be abused, that that can really
1: hinder healing. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, you can only take so much. And if you're, if you're in in a constant self-defense mode, then maybe you don't even have the energy to learn about boundaries or to, you know, to stand up for yourself. Maybe you need to drop back and regroup. Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I really like the um,
0: maturity awareness approach. Mm-hmm. Can you go into the, what, what's the, it's three steps, right? It's, I love the second one, focusing on the, on the outcome, not the relationship. The first one is what? expressing it and letting it go?
1: Yeah. um, There are kind of uh, two parts to it. One is what I try to get people to do is to stay in touch with themselves when they're interacting with the, the emotionally immature person. Because what usually has happened is that they've learned to disconnect from their own soul, so to speak. Yeah. And so if I can uh, be an advocate for them to just stay in touch with how they're feeling, what they're thinking, stay self-possessed and self-aware, that's the most important thing. Do you have any like tools that you give people to help them do that? Yeah, the, the first one is to detach. I mean, detach from the interaction in a way that you put your focus back on yourself. And you can do that by, paying attention to your breathing you know you can you can rub your arm you can uh, you know put your hands together you can squeeze your feet on the floor I mean anything that says I am here, this is me, I'm inside here um, and I am aware of my presence mm. that's what you want to go back to because the emotionally immature person, is compelled to try to pull you into their orbit Mm. and make it all about them. So the, so you have to detach from that kind of compelling thing that they do, where you're going to be sucked into giving them what they want in terms of your attention and your energy. So it's the detachment to step back from that, to get back in touch with yourself And then there is the, um, being aware of the outcome that you want for that interaction. If the outcome is the next time we come, uh, we're only coming for a couple of days, you know, when usually the parents expect them to spend a week or whatever. And so you're sending, you're setting some kind of limit. And when you do that, you are just being yourself. And you're not getting into reactivity about what they feel about it. When you have something that you want to tell them, that's the part about you can express it. Okay. That is certainly within your control. And a lot of people, um, they do this very um, spontaneously at a certain point in the therapy. They'll just come in one week and they'll say, well, you know, i I told my mom i told my mom everything (laughs) i told her what i really thought it's like you did (laughs) it kind of comes over people you know once they get the idea that maybe they weren't crazy and maybe they're entitled to have you know their own perspective on things uh they go ahead and they just do it um so that's pretty cool when that happens so yeah they uh they can just express it um but then they let go trying to make anything happen from that the point was the freedom to express yourself and to be there as your own individual person you don't have to uh, make the other person change or you know uh, change the relationship all at once all you have to do is just be yourself. And if you've done that, if you've maintained a hold on your own consciousness instead of being sucked into their business, that's a huge accomplishment.
0: Yeah. That's been really an important gauge for me. Am I saying this because I need to say this or am I saying this because I'm hoping to get some sort of, you know, outcome or change, what about when you have people come in and they're realizing the damage that they've done to their own children?
1: Mm, yeah, well, that's I mean, there's um, there's a, a question in the in the new book having to do with you know what if I start noticing emotionally immature characteristics in myself, you know, and then yeah, what you're saying is like one step beyond that, which most people would feel even worse about, which is you know, have I done this to my my children as well. And I think we can all safely say that we've probably passed along behaviors that had we known better, we would have, we would have done something differently. Because there's so much in parenting that comes to us in a sort of an instinctual way based on our past learning. And so, of course, we're going to make mistakes. Of course, we're going to do emotionally immature things. Plus, Andrea, the other problem is that, you know, if we're sick or we're stressed um, or we're exhausted, your emotional maturity is going to go down. Mm -hmm. Nobody is at their best and most mature when they're stressed or tired or sick. And we can fluctuate because of that. Now, an emotionally immature person is, is, it's possible for them to behave in a more mature way for a short period of time, um, but that doesn't mean that they're gonna be able to hang out there. And conversely, if you are pretty uh, adequately emotionally mature, but you regress under some of these, you know, extreme circumstances, you probably are going to bounce back from that. Mm-hmm. And when you do, you have the opportunity with your kids to let them know that you realize what happened and that you're sorry for it and that you wouldn't do that again if you had your wits about you. There's, um, there's a great book by um, Ed Tronic. Uh, and Claudia Gold, uh, Tronic was a um, famous baby researcher. He did the still face baby experiments that you can look up on YouTube. And his book is called The Power of Discord. Um, and in that he talks about how important it is that we do you know, inadvertently make mistakes with our children, creating the discord, but that when we come back and we're conscious of what happened and we try to repair it, that actually is the foundation of a really sturdy trust that the child develops in the relationship with you. Because it's sort of like, oh, you know, even when mom or dad seems the most unreachable, you know, even when they've upset me the most, there's a chance that they're going to come back and be able to listen later. Hmm. There's a chance that they will feel bad about what they're doing right now. And I'll be able to connect, reconnect with them because the child will have experienced that that's kind of the way you do things. Um, That it's not always, it's my way or the highway, or, you know, I'm always right. Uh, It's not that it's that, you are always thinking about your child in terms of the quality of your relationship with them and if something is wrong there that's going to really bother you and you'll want to go back and make amends or apologize to the child or let them know that you know you weren't you know real happy with how you acted toward them and that's and that's a tremendous learning thing for the child because you're modeling what you do when you stepped in it mm-hmm. you know? in accountability yeah this, this is this is what this is what you do and you know they have living proof because they're living through it that everybody feels better <laughs> after that happens and you actually end up feeling closer to the person when you have that kind of repair it's, it's pretty remarkable I would say for most of
0: my listeners and for myself, like that's all like we really hope for, right? Is like just to have our parents come back and kind of own their part. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, most I mean, of us will never get it.
1: Yeah. I mean, for any for any relationship, when somebody can come back and own their part, uh, you know, that that's the stepping stone to a really good relationship.
0: Are you working with many people or have you had this experience before where, you know, somebody comes in and they're working through this stuff. And as, as we said before, you know, like, a, like, and so they're kind of healing, but their spouse is not willing to, to do that, that their work on their own.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you go on a path of self-development or, or growth uh, and your partner isn't, then there is the possibility that you're going to kind of move to another wavelength for, for lack of a better word, that's maybe going to take you out of reach Mm -hmm. of where that other person still likes to hang out, you know, because people can, uh, I mean, you, you can see this happen a lot where, where people in their early 20s you know they're still growing they're still changing they get married that you know stay together for a period of time and then you know in their 30s maybe they've developed to a different level and then maybe it's sort of like you're not married for the same reasons that you got into it in the first place and things start changing Mm -hmm. yeah so Anytime that you are engaged in your own growth, I think there's the possibility that that will affect your other relationships that you're in. But, you know, if there's a core emotional maturity there and a good attachment, then I think you can work those things out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Coming from a place of both people have to be willing to work on their shit. Yeah. And, and then also there are a lot of things that we do that are fun in our early twenties that, you know, or, or later than that even. Um, But there are a lot of things that we do that are fun with other people and that's all part of our life experience. We wouldn't want to give that up, but it may not be forming the foundation of something that is going to be lifelong necessarily, because of the ongoing growth that's that's happening with people who are trying to be self-aware trying to develop Mm -hmm.
0: so when you think about writing the first book writing all the books the way in which people have gravitated towards this um the lives that have been changed are you able to like soak that in
1: yes yes and it and it is so it's so satisfying and it's so humbling um i get so many wonderful letters i mean it's interesting how many written letters i've gotten from people um it it's just been a wonderful experience of people saying things like you know how did you know this about me or were you in my living room when I was growing up? <laughs> or when did you meet my mother? Um, so it's it's been tremendously gratifying that whatever it was that I wrote was something that people already knew at some level. But I just helped put it into words that that they could really start thinking about it more. It's gotta be a little bit of a surreal experience, I would think. Well, you know, it's been so gradual, Andrea, that I think I've really grown into it. I mean, my first book came out in 2000. That was uh, Who You're Meant to Be. And then the uh, adult children book came out in 2015. And it really didn't take off uh, for two or three years after that. Was there like a defining moment? Like this thing happened? we haven't we haven't really been able to figure it out i mean we really haven't uh, And <laughs> in, in fact my editor you know this was uh, probably about uh, maybe 3 years ago it's it just zoomed and she said lindsay what do you think is going on later i thought about it and it came to me that uh, there's a quote from a philosopher that says Uh, people are starved for truth. And I think that there was some kind of critical mass that got reached where enough people had heard about it that it began to really spread. You know, it was like word of mouth, word of mouth, and then also it was like, boom. Um, There's so many people telling so many other people that it, it really kind of skyrocketed at that point. But I think that, I think it was just the timing was right. This is something that people were aware of. They didn't exactly know how to talk about it or think about it. And then I think the book kind of intersected that. It's amazing. Yeah, it is.
0: Is there anything that you wish was in the first book that's
1: not? Hmm. What a great question. I mean, there actually has been, um, well, of course, or first I'll say that, that's sort of the reason for having the next four yes, books. Yes, yes, yeah, no. <laughs> so, so yeah, there are there are plenty of things that I wish I had had in the first book, but they did show up in the second, third, and fourth book. So that's that's good. But I would say that the the one thing that has been exciting to me um, recently is that I've been reading about the difference in the way that uh, people use each side of their brain and their understanding of life. Mm. And one side of the brain is kind of a, um, like get her done kind of almost machine, like, Mm. uh, black and white, very judgmental kind of, you know, all I want to do is get this thing done kind of thing. It's our hunter brain too. We, we laser focus on something and don't get in my way you know, when I'm after that. And then we have the other side of our mind, which is very attuned to ourselves, to other people, to nature. It's very holistic, um, very instinctual, very intuitive, uh, likes to put things together, not break them apart. And it's a it's really the source of our wisdom, you know, people that are wise, it's because they can see the big picture, they can, they see how things work together, they see how things interact, whereas the other kind of um, thinker is always, you know, taking things apart, figuring out how it works, you know, and, and then they feel like they've solved the problem, but, you know, they haven't solved the problem because it takes the wisdom to take that understanding and turn it into something creative, something new. I mean, you, you just have to have that other part of your brain to, to be able to do that. So what I've noticed is that I was reading about this brain stuff. It was like, oh my gosh, the emotionally immature people are really stuck in this more mechanistic kind of um well, I would call it kind of a, a superficial kind of thought. Uh-huh. Really pulling things together. They're not seeing how if I do this here, it's going to have this effect down the road here. They're just not thinking in big picture ways. It's more like, what do I need right now? And what do what do you need to give me so I can do that? And so that that's been uh that's actually been the latest thing that I've, I've been reading about that has not made it into any of the books yet. Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. (laughs) Do you know what you want your next book to be about? Um, I'm not really sure. Uh, I just finished the um, uh, guided journal that'll Mm -hmm. be coming out probably in spring of next year. And then I'm doing a a training book for therapists to use my methods with, uh, adult children of emotionally mature parents. And that'll be coming out in the fall of next year. Amazing. Yeah. So I've got my, my plates full up until then.
0: So is it just going to be various journal prompts?
1: Yes. Yes. But it's based on, uh, the impact that emotionally mature parents have on their kids Uh, You know, like how they affect your self confidence, how they affect your willingness to um, know yourself, how they affect your sense of belonging. Uh, Just, you know, all these little ways that you may not think of being impacted by them, but it really does show up in your life. And so we just take a look at their like 12 ways that you've been impacted. And then we just do. Prompts, And I, I was really enjoying writing it because it was like I was asking myself so many good questions, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I, I like how that one turned out. Do you incorporate inner
0: child stuff at all in your work with, with individuals?
1: Yeah, yeah, very much so. I think, I think that's one of the most useful um, ways of approaching problems. I mean, it has everything going for it it's compassionate i think it's accurate i think we all have like it's like the russian nesting dolls we all have that little doll you know in the very center and you ignore it at your own peril you mm-hmm. know because that little person in there has to be heard and has to be worked with in order for us to you know really get solid and strong inside yeah so i i love it and people you know people respond very well to it everybody knows what i'm talking about i've never had anybody say what inner child what you know no they all they all know it's like talking about the soul like like we can't really put a finger on it but we all know what it is i thought it was so stupid at first but i'm so glad that
0: i came around to it um And it was like, even though I thought it was corny, like I knew the value in it. Like I I knew how important, but it just took me a little while to come around. But I'll tell you, when I started to connect with my inner child, that's when the tears finally started to come up for me.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, and that's the, to me, that's, that's the proof in the pudding. It's like, when you get an emotional response to something, you are processing it at the level where it needs to be processed. You know, you can think about it all day long, and it's like there's a wall between that thinking and the part of you that needs to change. But once the emotion gets involved, then yeah, you're doing this really, really important work. It's a grieving, you yeah. know, grieving yeah. that needs to happen. It is. And also recognition that uh you know like of course you're scared of course Mm -hmm. you're intimidated of course you don't know what to do of course you're overwhelmed like who was there for you (laughs) where where did you you know where did you get the security from no wonder you're this way it's a very compassionate way of working with yourself I, I
0: started going through the, I don't know if you heard, uh, ACA has a newer book, the loving parent guidebook. It's really beautiful.
1: Oh, I know. I hadn't heard of that. Thank you for telling me.
0: Yeah, it's good. It's like, you know, connecting with your, your loving parent and then addressing inner child, inner teenager and inner critical parent. Oh, it sounds great. Well, this has been such an honor. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all of your work and for helping so many people and future generations as well. And I just feel really honored to have been able to chat with you.
1: Oh, thank you, Andrea. This has been a great conversation. And I appreciate all your really deep and thoughtful questions. You've had some good ones. (laughs) Made me think.
2: That's radio, B-E-E-T-S, dot com, code DEAL.